Let me pray for us. Father, what an amazing truth we actually <laughs> were singing. Um, truths that are sometimes so easy to sing, but at times so hard to even internalize and, and truly know that you are actually holding us fast. I, I pray for this morning that we would be changed by your word, that your word would bring a, a change in our hearts and, and that it would be your spirit working in us. Thank you again for this opportunity of being together and hearing God's word together. Amen. I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Not long ago, actually it was 2017, that I read an article that appeared in the Spanish new newspaper, El Mundo, or The World, uh, one of the most famous newspapers there. And actually it was in the front page of the newspaper. I, I don't read the printed edition, I read the uh, online edition. And it talked about superstition. And I thought, that's weird. What, why would it talk about superstition? And, and I started reading the newspaper, and it talked about how the, in Western Europe, Western Europe, uh, you, would, you would not think of it, but it's a very superstitious uh, area of the world. The three more superstitious countries are Italy, Germany, and Spain. Not countries you would think are superstitious. But the article detailed, and it was really interesting because it, it talked about how there were all these rituals that people would go through just to have good luck. I mean, they would talk about things that I've never heard of before. The, my favorite was that if you blow out all your candles, your, your, uh, your birthday candles, then you'll have a great year. It gets, you know, harder and harder as, you know, you're older, right? When you're one, it's awesome. When you're 60 is probably harder. So that, it was so funny because the, the article talked about uh, things like uh, crossing your fingers when you talk or when you see someone who doesn't have a good appearance or uh, hanging a horseshoe upside down or right side up. I don't know which one is which. Uh, or even carry what they call amulets or good luck charms uh, to help them have good luck. And obviously, as a believer, you're here and you're listening to me and thinking, that's crazy. I would never do that. I would never carry a good luck charm. And I think most of us would laugh at that. I read that article and I thought that was hilarious. No one would do that. But last summer, I wanted to buy Melissa a bracelet and I went into the store and they sold, you know, those fake stones. You know what I'm talking about? The ones that are supposed to bring good luck. I didn't know. And we went in there with my youngest son. And it was funny because the bracelet was, was so, was beautiful. And I was trying to look at it. And my son, my three-year-old at the time was touching everything. So the lady said, look here, here's a stone for him. It'll, it'll help him calm down. So Kian, our youngest, doesn't understand Spanish. He's the only one. And he looked at the stone and put it in his mouth, thinking it was candy. <laughs> and, and the lady said, oh, no, it's not supposed to work that fast. Just put it in his pocket. I realized I was at one of those good luck places, uh, and I fled, obviously. All this to say we live in a world of, filled with superstition. 
So this morning, I want us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, and it's probably a story that you're very familiar with. If you went to Sunday school, how many of you went to Sunday school? Really? Just a few of you? <laughs> well, if you went to Sunday school, you know this story. If you didn't grow up going to Sunday school, you might not know this story. But, it, but it's a story about how Israel, the, the people of Israel, actually try to use a good luck charm to win a battle. And what this story reveals is not that they're fools. Yes, they are fools. But really, it reveals to us Israel's heart. They are a proud nation. They're truly, they truly have no idea who God is. They seem to be so far removed to the, the God that actually saved them. Israel seems to be living off the past. They live on tail, off of tales they probably heard growing up about God saving them. And, and what they're revealing is that Israel is nothing, um, that God is nothing but a genie who just grants wishes. So please open God's word to chapter 4, 1 Samuel. And if you look at the books of Samuel, you see three people, three main characters, Samuel in the first 10 chapters about. Then you see, David, uh, you see Saul, the first king of Israel, and then you see David, the second king of Israel. And Samuel's story is pretty interesting because Samuel's parents are dedicating him to serve Yahweh since before he was even born. Samuel's parents were godly people. That wasn't normal in the time of the judges. And in chapter 2, you see that Samuel is born and Hannah writes this psalm of worship. She talks about how God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. She speaks of how God is a savior. She speaks about God's sovereignty. And she even worships God for being a just God. Remember, this was not the norm at the time. Hannah was just a, a rare Israelite. But this psalm of worship is actually very rare because actually Israel had turned their backs on God. God was judging Israel constantly. Israel was living in apostasy. And in fact, the entire book of Judges tells us that Israel just lived of what we can call spiritual amnesia. They forgot what God had done for them, how they had actually been saved from slavery in Egypt, how God conquered the promised land for them. So Israel is living in apostasy. And here is a Samuel, is a young boy, goes and, and works for this man called Eli, who is a high priest. And his sons were terrible men. In chapter 3, you can see that they were corrupt men. They took advantage of God's people. They profited from the worship of God. And God was going to judge these men. So we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we're not going to see Samuel, but we're going to see the folly of Israel. And what we are going to observe is that Israel is in complete disarray, spiritually speaking. They have no idea who Yahweh is. In chapter 2, we talked about Hannah's prayer. She proclaims that God opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. She also speaks of God's justice. And it's like that prayer is so fitting to what we're going to see this morning, how God opposes the proud and 
gives grace to the humble. So this morning, we're going to see this. We're going to see how God is going to oppose Israel because they are proud. We're going to witness Israel's apathy. So let's go to chapter 4, where in verses 1 through 4, we see Israel's pride. Israel's pride. Look at verse 1. Thus, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in Aphek. So here we see that Israel goes out to battle with the Philistines. And, and if you know anything about biblical history, you know that this is not the first time the Philistines appear in the biblical account. Remember, they were a thorn in Israel's side. There was always some kind of issue with them, right? We, we don't know exactly why uh, uh, Israel is marching against their enemies, but w- what we do know is that Israel here sets up a camp, a base of operations in a city called Ebenezer, And also the Philistines were uh, setting up their operations in one of their most important cities called Aphek. Now, why? We don't know what's going on here. I don't know if Israel's trying to attack or defend, but we do know that they're marching in battle. Verse 2, the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Now, it seems like the first battle goes to the Philistine. And it seems like it's a quick, by the Hebrew here, it seems like it's a very quick battle. 4,000 men are killed. Now, this was to be expected. And why, why do I say this? Because historians tell us that the Philistines were technolo- technolo- technologically superior. They had weapons made out of iron, and they were more advanced in every way possible. So, of course, they easily beat Israel. Verse 3, when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take for ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. This verse is very interesting, to say the least. Because it shows us that Israel's leaders were actually in denial about their own spiritual reality. Let me explain. When Israel's army returns from battle, having lost 4,000 soldiers, the elders of Israel, the the leadership of Israel, asks a very good question. I, I would say a theologically astute question. Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? See, this is a question that tells us that God is sovereign over everything. The elders knew that Israel has, had been defeated not because the Philistines were better, but because Yahweh was who defeated them. But the question is why? Why would Israel lose? Why? Well, the answer to that, you can find it in God's word. In Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord said what, what it would happen. He told Israel if they were unfaithful, then God himself was going to bring their enemies and they were going to beat them every single time. They were going to be defeated by their enemies constantly. So this is God's judgment. So the answer to the question posed by the elders was, 
was obvious. Israel was suffering because they were disobedient. And they were actually rebelling against God. But the elders, instead of thinking, okay, what do we need to do here? Instead of reassessing and instead of calling the people to repentance, thinking, oh, the law says we need to repent, what do they do? Verse 3, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Instead of seeing this defeat as a wake-up call from the Lord, Israel's leadership actually sees this setback to, as an opportunity to actually utilize their secret weapon, their lucky ark, so that the ark can go among the people and actually defeat their enemies. And before we ask, why? Why did they do this? We need to ask ourselves, well, what is this Ark of the Covenant? Well, first of all, this Ark of the Covenant was built out of wood, and it was overlaid with gold. It was 122 centimeters. I'm sorry, you don't do centimeters. You do imperial here, right? So it was three feet and three quarters by two and one quarter. So it was this box. And this box meant something for Israel. It wasn't just a box. It actually was very important because it sat in the tabernacle. It pointed to God's presence. It pointed to, to God's leadership over its people. It pointed to God's voice and his forgiveness because it had the mercy seat where, remember, the high priest would sprinkle the blood and once a year in the Day of Atonement. So when the people marched, the ark went ahead of them. Remember, that's what you read in the Pentateuch. Do you remember what happened when Israel was, they were in the wilderness? And what happened when they crossed the Jordan? And what happened when Jericho's walls fell? The ark was there. So, of course, the elders, remembering these stories that were told when they were little and they went to or Saturday school, I guess they went, right? They, they were like, okay, let's get, we got to get this contraption to work. It has worked before. It, it has to work. Although the worship of God was corrupted, remember Eli's son, we talked about them, they were horrible people. Although Israel's back was turned to them, it was turned to God, by taking out the ark, everything was going to change. We are going to reverse Israel's fortune. This is going to be great. So what happened? Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So Eli and his sons are the are the custodials over this ark, and they see these soldiers, and we don't see any kind of like, uh, hey, wait a second, you need to worship God first. This is not just some contraption that you can use. No, no, no. They were like, okay, <laughs> take it out. No one's using it. So they lend themselves to this religious sham. This is really actually being presumptuous, right? This is arrogance. 
Instead of repenting Israel, instead of seeing this defeat as something that came from God like they did, no, they are pulling their rabbit's foot. They're pulling their lucky charm. And something's going to happen. We're going to win the battle. And of course, all of this is kind of clothed in spiritual-like language. It's like, this is what God wants us to do. See, what we lost because we didn't have that ark with us. They were trying to use this symbol of the Lord's presence as an amulet or as a charm to win a battle. Their heart's motivation was not to repent and worship the true God, but it was to win a battle at all costs. I don't care about God. I care about winning a battle. And of course, this is the problem, right? What we can see here is that Israel wanted a religion based on superstition and rituals that didn't require a heart that worshiped God. This is a problem. They wanted the result without a heart that was willing to worship the God of the universe. This is not only being foolish, but this is being arrogant. To think that they can manipulate the God that made heaven and earth, the sovereign of the universe. Now, all of us here, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been at church, no matter your spiritual pedigree, like your grandfathers, your great-grandfathers were Christians, right? We realize this story is ridiculous, right? No one here is thinking, well, that's a great, great idea. I'll make sure I carry this cross with me everywhere, and I'll get the best job and make a lot of money. And we see this, trying to manipulate the sovereign God of the universe is ridiculous. But how many times do we actually act like this? Not by carrying an ark with us, but by thinking of our Christian life as a lucky charm. I'm not talking about you. Disciplines have become about, more about you reading your Bible than feasting on God's grace. Right? I just got to get my Bible reading done. It doesn't matter what I read. I just need to read. Oh, I need to pray. doesn't matter where my heart is. I need to pray. I need to go to church because I need to go to church. I need to go to equipping class because that's what we do. And without thinking at times, all these good things, right? Reading your Bible, praying, going to church, spending time with other believers can become a, a way of trying to manipulate God into giving us something, maybe a blessing or two that we deserve, of course. See, that comes from a heart of pride. That comes from a heart that seeks to worship ourselves and not God. And we become like Israel, who, who wanted this lucky charm to help them conquer their enemies. Come on, they're Philistines. Their name says it all. They're terrible people, God. We're way better. Perhaps this is just what is happening in our own hearts, right? Perhaps our hearts are from, far from God and we keep the appearances of godliness because we think that that's what God requires of us. Remember, we can never manipulate God. Israel was trying to manipulate God. I truly think that they thought that they can manipulate God by doing these things. But they can't. 
That takes us to verses 5 to 11, where you see Israel's humiliation. Israel's humiliation. After the elders decide to take the Ark of the Covenant for a walk, really, look what happens in verse 5. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. Now the lucky charm came out of Shiloh and it enters the camp in Ebenezer. And the Israelites recognize what it is. They know, wait a second, my dad told me about this. My grandfather told me about this. And all Israel shouted, it says here. This is incredible. It says here that the the shouting actually shook the earth. When I was little with my family, we lived a mile away from a, a soccer stadium. And every time the local team would score, the earth shook. I think about that. It was probably something like that. The sound was shocking. The the Israelites here were trying to relive their story, their history, something that they were trying to recreate, something that happened 400 years ago. When? When Israel sieged Jericho, remember? You remember that story? Led by the ark, the children of Israel are going around this walled city And they shouted the last day. And what happened? The walls came down. But the situation is completely different 400 years later. The Philistines are a totally different story. And in this situation, Israel was not conquering the promised land. They didn't have a leader like Joshua. They didn't have the captain of the Lord's army on their side. In this situation, Israel is living in Spiritual apathy, they don't care. So Israel was trying to recreate or reconstruct what had happened so many years ago. And look, the camp was more elated to see the ark than to worship God. Did you see that? They were so excited to see an ark, a box, than to actually worship the God that made everything. Perhaps these men were thinking, if we could recreate what happened with with Joshua and Jericho, the Philistines would be our our slaves forever. It's payback time. Let's avenge those 4,000 souls that died. In the time of Joshua, when they were sieging Jericho, the other nations were paralyzed by their fear, remember? Every time Israel was around, they're like, oh no, they're coming. And at first, in verses 6 through 8, it seems like it happens again. Look, look at verse 6. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what, what does this noise, uh, the, uh, what is the noise of this great shout of, in the camp of the Hebrew mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Verse 7, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. For nothing like, like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. See, the, these Philistines seem to know the history of Israel better than the Israelites. 
A couple of things to highlight here. First is the Philistines realized that the Ark of Yahweh had reached the Israelite camp. And they know this because they hear all those euphoric cries. And immediately they're afraid. Second, look at this. Uh, They themselves know the history of Israel. It's something remarkable that they actually knew what God had done to the Egyptians. These pagans knew what Yahweh had done. And to the shame of the Israelites, who were so prideful and trusting in the ark, the Philistines seemed to know that what the Lord of the ark was capable of. Not what the ark was capable of, but what the Lord of the ark was capable of. The Philistines have two reactions. There's fear. But then, in verse 9, out of the blue, there's commitment. Look at verse 9. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. Remember that when Israel was conquering the promised land, the, the Israel, the, the, the ark, and Yahweh instilled so much fear that the enemies were paralyzed. But this time it's not going to be so. Something interesting is that the Philistines are not crying out to Dagon, their god, or any of the deities from their pantheon of gods, but they appeal to their determination, their, their own manhood, and, and their own strength. And what happened? Look at verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his own tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. The Philistines were so invigorated, so inspired, that they fought in, in such a way that Israel was defeated. But, but it was not just a defeat. Verse 10 tells us that every man fled to his own tent. One commentator, one Hebrew commentator, uh, says that the implication of that phrase, every man fled to his tent, it's not that they actually fled and they got into their tent, but the whole, that's, a, that's a, a phrase that means that they retired. They were humiliated in such a way that they stopped being soldiers. These men stopped fighting. They had been embarrassed. But this is not all. The slaughter was very great. The idea here is this was a massacre. This is what the author of 1 Samuel is trying to express. There was no contest at all here. And it says, For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. 30,000. Israel had the four-leaf clover, right? The rabbit's foot. It had their favorite amulet. And what happened? 30,000 men were massacred. Many commentators agree with this. And they say that Shiloh, after this, was totally destroyed. It was during this time, probably a couple days later, that they were completely destroyed. There are several reasons for this, but perhaps it's because the, the most reasons are... In the books of Samuel, you'll never hear of the, the city Shiloh again. But also in Psalm 78, 60, we don't have time to go there, but it tells the story of what happened, and it talks about how Shiloh had been destroyed. 
So this is terrible. Not only there's a total retreat, not only 30,000 men die, but the whole city is destroyed a couple of days later. But the worst is yet to come. Verse 11, and the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Pinehas, died. As if this was just a comment, an add-on. Oh, by the way, the logical conclusion of this is that the ark was taken. It was captured. Oh, and Eli's son died, by the way. Although Eli knew this because he had revealed this to Eli twice by a prophet and by young Samuel that their sons were going to be judged. Sadly, this section is marked by, the, by Israel being humbled by God. Israel who thought that God was on their side because they carried the, this box around. God humbled them. Why? Oh, Hannah told us that, right? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God uses the Philistines to really judge Israel. Once again, this, this is the danger of presuming upon God, the danger of using God as a good luck charm, the danger of pride. Once again, we as believers now have to be careful. God is not a good luck charm. God is not something that brings us good luck. He's not an add-on to our lives. He is the sovereign of the universe. He's not our insurance just in case something happens to us, a couple of prayers and we're fine. No, he's the holy one. God is not something that we use to make our lives better. He is our life. Hannah in her psalm in 1 Samuel 2 says, there's no one holy like the Lord. Truly no one is like him. That's what she says. But Israel forgot about this. They saw his works and they forgot. How sad. Finally, in verses 12 to 22, we see the consequences, Israel's consequences. Here we're going to see how there are consequences to spiritual apathy. Look at verse 12. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. After the battle, we're back in Shiloh. Of course, this is before it was destroyed. Most likely, it was destroyed a couple of days after this story happened. And, and here you see a man from the tribe of Benjamin coming and running, and now, uh, and look how he's dressed. He's dressed with clothing that is torn, and he has dust on his head. This is a clear indication that this man, man is in mourning. This man is in terrible grief. And at the same time, in his grief, he comes as a messenger to Shiloh. Verse 13, when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of the God. So the men came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. Eli knew that his sons were going to die, right? He, he knew this. He had heard it twice. But look, he's anxious. His heart trembled. 
not because of his kids, but because of the ark of God. Look at the second part of verse 13. So the men came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. The men arrives, he shares this horrible news with the city, and notice that the city cries out. As if everyone in the city was waiting for a good outcome. Come on, we, we have the amulet. We, we have the lucky charm. What do you mean it didn't work? And, and the bad news is not only that we lost the battle, not only did we lose 30,000 men, but we lost the ark, which in their spiritually warped mind, it meant we lost God. We lost the presence of God. Verse 14. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does this noise of this commotion mean? Then the men came hurriedly and told Eli. Eli was a high priest. He was also the judge. He was the man there, you can say. And although he was very old, he hears the screams. He, he begins to wonder, what happened? Verse 15. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Verse 16. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. So Eli said, how did things go, my son? Eli is old. He's 98 years old. He's blind naturally. Eli learns that this man is dressed in mourning and coming from a battlefield. He worries. He thinks, oh, no, what happened? I fear that there's probably some bad news coming. So the messenger proceeds and gives him bad news. Verse 17. Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. These are horrible news. But the news are comprised by four stories. It's like, you know, watching the news. Everything's really bad news when you're watching the news. They have, like, really bad, you know, stories, like four stories. Well, this is kind of like watching the news now. But these are worse. Look at the first news. Israel has fled. So we lost the battle. Second news. There's been a great slaughter. Oh, no. All these people died. The third news, right? They're going from bad to worse. Your sons died. Oh, no. The fourth news. The ark of God has been taken. Some news, right? Four terrible news stories, if you will. And the author doesn't tell us how Eli responds to the first three news stories, right? He's not saying anything. But he does tell us and reveal to us how he reacts to the latest news. Verse 18. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backwards beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. Israel ends his life on earth. He goes into eternity hearing the worst news a high priest could ever have heard. 
The ark of God, the ark of the covenant, that ark that Moses brought was stolen by a pagan army, a polytheistic army, an aggressor army. And Eli dies. He breaks his neck and dies at the age of 98, having judged Israel for 40 years. What a life. And so Eli's life ends, a life marked by spiritual abandonment, uh, corruption in Shiloh, corruption uh, of his sons as priests, an era marked by the forgetfulness of Yahweh, the lack of conviction. That was Eli. The callousness in Israel's heart is exemplified in the life of this man. But the consequences continue. Verse 19, look. Now his daughter-in-law, Eli's daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth for her pains came upon her. Eli was not the only one who had been affected by this bad news. His daughter-in-law was affected as well. When his daughter-in-law hears what had occurred, she was pregnant and about to give birth, but upon hearing these news, in her despair, she suffers from labor pains and, and gives birth prematurely. Verse 20, and about that time of her death, Think about this, she's going to die now. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay any attention. This woman dies when given birth. But before, but before she dies, while the women were with her, and assisting her in her delivery, they give her good news. Don't be afraid. Your child is well. And you have a child. And it tells them, you gave birth to a son. Why is this news good news? Her husband was dead. Her father-in-law was dead. The ark was taken. Well, most likely... They thought, look, this, your son, can be the next high priest. She didn't respond to that. She didn't respond or, or pay any attention, and, and it wasn't because she was dying. We find the reason in verse 21. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has, was taken, and because of her father-in-law, and her husband. This woman has enough strength in her that before she dies, she can name her son and name, names him Ichabod. Yes, that, that name in Hebrew means no glory. The word kabod in Hebrew means glory. So you can basically say the glory is gone. With the ark, there's no more glory in Israel. With the death of Eli and Phinehas, no glory. The glory is gone. And look at her last words, verse 22. 
She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. The ark was taken. It was stolen. Obviously, God is gone. What a sad way to look at God's presence, isn't it? It is as if God lived in that box. God lives there. He's confined to the little box. But that is evidence of what was going on in Israel, right? The apathy of Israel. If Eli was apathetic to God and so were his sons, how much more regular people in Israel? And that apathy is also evidence in that there's no type of testimony in the word of God that this judgment, right, that the, the fact that the ark was taken brought any repentance whatsoever in Israel. You know what I think Israel thought? This is just bad luck. You know, the ark didn't work. We should have used something else. How sad, isn't it? In their apathy to the Lord, Israel continues in their, their moral decline. But in the midst of a, such a difficult situation, if you were to read the following chapters, you would see how God continues to be faithful to Israel. Even though Israel is completely gone, spiritually speaking, God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign and continues to work and do his will. Even though the ark was stolen and God was gone, if you will. God is going to do his will. It shouldn't surprise us that Israel had used the ark as an amulet. For, for them, it, it, God was nothing more than a lucky charm. Something you carry around just to get good luck. Imagine this. After everything, after all God had done for Israel, Israel had been chosen by God. God had preserved Abraham's line even when Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids. God had preserved Abraham's line even when Isaac and Rebekah couldn't have kids. God had preserved uh, the line in Israel even when they were slaves in Egypt, when they were in the wilderness, when, when they were given the promised land, God had taken care of them. And every time they cried out in the time of the judges, God saved them, and they went back and back to worshiping all their idols. But to Israel, really, this God, Yahweh, is just a lucky charm. He's not the God of the promise. He's not of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of Moses. He's not the God of Joshua. He's not the God of the covenant. God is just a rabbit's foot, a talisman to win battles and to do well. My friends, in this story, there's a warning, and the warning is there for us as well. In this story, we see that we need to be careful with God. God is not our lucky charm. He's not a genie that is going to give you whatever you want. He's not an addition. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He's holy, 
And as Hannah said, there's no one like him. One commentator of the Old Testament puts it this way, speaking of what Israel had done by bringing up the ark. He said this, here was a pressure tactic, a way of, if you will pardon the expression, twisting God's arm. That is not faith, but superstition. It is what I call rabbit's foot theology. When we, whether Israelites or Christians, operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him. Not to submit to God, but to use him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We're interested in success, not repentance. Sometimes, sadly, we are just like Israel. How many times we actually act like this? We act like we can earn God's favor. I'm going to serve him so that he'll answer my prayers. We wouldn't say that out loud, but in our hearts of hearts, we think that, right? I'm going to read my Bible so that he will owe me something. So if I pray and read today, I might not get horrible traffic in the 405. I'm going to go to morning service, and I'm going to come back in the evening just to show how serious I am, Lord. I'm going to do this or that, care group, everything. And I don't do it because I love God, and I don't do it because I love the people around me. I do it because I have my own reasons. See, while I was preparing this sermon I, was, I actually had to ask myself uh, these questions. And immediately came to mind when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees. Remember when he quotes Isaiah and he says, these people, they honor me with what? Their lips, right? Oh, yeah, they, they know everything. But their hearts are far from me. And I had to ask myself, honestly, some uncomfortable questions like, where is my heart when I serve the Lord? Like, what do I do? Why do I do what I do? So I ask you this morning, since I asked myself these questions, where's your heart this morning? Why do you do what you do? Are you being sensitive to God's word and his leading? Is your heart humble before the Lord? Do do you fear God? Or are you presumptuous, arrogant? If you are anything like me, sometimes we view our service, we wouldn't say it loud, we wouldn't vocalize, but sometimes we, we, we view our service, our spiritual disciplines, as a way to earn God's favor, right? We tend to think, well, we're doing well spiritually, then God loves me more, obviously, because I'm doing well. But that's not the way. You know that. There's a way to counteract that kind of thinking. And the answer is to rely on Christ. It's to renew your mind, to humble yourself before the Lord and be honest with him. And do you remember God's love for Israel? In Deuteronomy 6, we see God's choosing Israel. It wasn't because they were a great and mighty nation. He chose them because he loved them 
He chose them before they were a nation. They were just an elderly couple without kids. Abraham and Sarah. And yet he loved them. So you know what Israel's problem was? It wasn't that they were just idolaters and they were carrying an ark around. Yes, that's a problem, but it wasn't the main problem. Their problem was unbelief. They truly didn't have faith in the love of God. And they really, truly didn't believe God loved them. And I think that that is our problem as well. We tend to do the same thing. Every time we sin, every time we sin, it's a direct result of our lack of faith, our lack of belief that God loves us. So when we find ourselves in trouble or we find ourselves in sin, what happens? Well, we forget that God loves us. We forget that he is for us and not against us. And immediately we are trying to search for ways to get back into God's good graces. And we forget that he loves us, that he demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that is the proof that he loves us. So next time you're trying to do religion, believe. Believe that God loves you. Believe that God loves you and come to him. Come to Christ and, and humble yourself before him. Come to him and recognize that the God of the Bible is the only Savior. And you might say to me, I'm a believer already. Good, I'm glad, but come to him and recognize he's the only Savior. As someone once said, a book I read a long time ago, said, when you see him as a genie that will give you whatever you want, do you see him as a rabbit's foot, lucky charm? Or do you see him as the God of the universe, as the one that deserves all the glory, all your worship, all your service? Because what you think about him will determine how you relate to him. Let's pray. You are glorious, Father. You are. We want to give you all the glory. We want to give you all the glory with our being, with our, with our lives. Father, forgive us for at times thinking that we can muster up some kind of way to getting closer to you by our works. Father, thank you for Christ. He did it all. And we can rely and rest in him. Amen.